It's great to be here. Um, yeah, really great to be here. You're all looking wonderful. It's sweltering, isn't it? It's kind of that clammy, uh, clammy weather. Nothing like a thick, cream-colored carpet to make us feel nice and chilled out. Um, I just wanted to introduce myself first off. Uh, I'm Pete. This is my wife, Sarah. We have come from, I'm from London originally, southeast London. Uh, and Sarah's from Cape Town. I've been in Cape Town the last 10 years. And we're back over for four or five weeks to really just travel around and share about what God's up to in our little corner of Cape Town called Manenberg. Um, We are part of running a church called Tree of Life. Um, We're part of the 24-7 prayer network. Um, And one of uh, the main things that Sarah and I spend our time doing is living in Manenberg, which is sometimes termed an apartheid dumping ground, uh, where gangs and drugs uh, are everywhere, uh, but where we're seeing the power and love of Jesus turn up, transform lives, and change stories. Um, Hence the name of the book, No Neutral Ground. Um, Sarah and I have opened up our home. At the moment, we have um, a number of young men 18 to 25-year-old guys who are coming out of uh, gangs and drugs, heroin, crystal meth, mandrax, which is a sort of, um, how would you describe it? A tranquilizer with psychotic side effects. And uh, we welcome these young men and we say, come and live with us. Um, Come, yeah, sure, you think you're coming to come off drugs. That will be part of it. But come and really uh, discover who Jesus has created you to be. Come and belong in family. Come and be embraced rather than marginalized. Um, and that's, part, that's one part of uh, our church life. Uh, we have a home for uh, abused teenage girls called Basila, which is Arabic, meaning brave and strong. And 13 to 18-year-olds from various backgrounds, they come and they discover how beautiful, precious, and brave and strong they are. We have a preschool called Skatis, which is Afrikaans for uh, uh, precious little ones, Skatabolichis, little treasures. Uh, I'm still learning. And <laughs> And they come, uh, little kids, preschool age, uh, from households where addiction and abuse is rife. And they come and, um, again, are invested in, loved, and transformed. We call ourselves Tree of Life. We have uh, detoxing gangsters. We have addicted single mothers. We have kids with every developmental issue you can imagine. We have... um, Uh, people who have come out of Islam, people who are still in Islam. We have a splattering of Christians here and there in our church, and we're muddling along. (laughs) Amen. I see a couple of you here tonight, yeah. And and we are just muddling along, but following the voice of Jesus in a place where, in Cape Town, you should try it. It's It's almost a party trick, but it's kind of grown old now, 10 years later. But if you come to Cape Town and you rent a car, and you write down the address that you're staying at, and you put Manenberg in capital letters. Just watch the color um, kind of drain out of the car rental person's face. And um, the reason being is that Manenberg is spoken about as one of those Manenberg. Can anything good come out of Manenberg? And it really is uh, the dumping ground in the edge of Cape Town where white supremacists racist apartheid governments, built, by the way, on bad theology. If ever there's an argument for good theology, let the rotten legacy of apartheid be it. 
Get into your Bibles. <laughs> Question. Ask. Don't just take what I'm saying for truth. I don't want to tell you what to think, but let's learn how to think together. That's community on mission together. Theology is a verb, by the way. We all theology every day, whether you know it or not. What you do, what you don't do, what you say, you don't say, the people you hang out with, where you live, that's you theologying. Um, and the world will know we're the world by the love that comes out of our theology. One of the lines in the script is that we've all got a journey marked out ahead. What will yours hold? What are the adventures as yet unknown that the voice of God is calling each one of us into? The book is just really me writing down my version of my story. And the thing is, each one of us has our own Manenberg. Each one of us has our own book. And tonight, what I want to look at is what I'm calling the necessity of process. Because so often we might watch a video like that, and we might think, well, that looks pretty dramatic. Um, That looks like they're really succeeding in what they're called to do. That looks pretty uh, well-branded or whatever. And the fact of the matter is that might be true. Bits of it are true, but we're on a journey, and we're 10 years into a journey, and we kind of still feel we're at step one in some ways. The journey that God has us on, each one of us, literally bar none in this room and in this world, is a journey that fulfills the U-shaped hole that will be left in the Great Commission if you don't rise up and follow the purpose and call of God's heart for your own life. I want to think about Joseph quickly, and then we're going to talk about Jairus, then we're going to think about relapse, and we're going to come back to um, the start. We're going to have a little cyclical look at process in the next 20 minutes or so. Process isn't necessarily a word we think, oh great, you know, when, someone, when you ask someone for something and they say, well there's actually a process for that, it makes us think of bureaucracy, red tape, etc., Let's think of uh, the story of Joseph, Uh, Genesis 37 to 42, five chapters of absolute gold. Joseph, who was born into a family where his anointing for dreams was stewarded so naively by himself, by the way, that he got thrown into a pit by those who were meant to surround him and love him, his brothers. He wasn't able at that young age to steward what God had said over him, the prophetic promise of his life, the the, the dreams that he was given of sheaves of uh, uh, corn bowing down at his feet. He didn't know how to handle it. It didn't mean that the promises of God weren't true. He just needed to grow up and learn how to handle what God was saying to him. What happens, his brothers in the end have mercy on him. They don't kill him like they were planning to, but they throw him into a pit, sold as a slave. Life goes downhill. He's in the bottom of a pit. Someone once said a pit is really just, stands for P-I-T, profit in training. (laughs) The deeper the pit, the greater the well can be that is filled with the living water Jesus assured us would flow out of us as we receive his Holy Spirit. But Joseph is stuck in the bottom of a pit. He's sold as a slave. He goes to uh, be a slave, in fact, at Potiphar's house. This is a downward trajectory going way against the prophetic dreams that God had given him for his life. And then he rises back up to the top. The favor of God was on him and Potiphar actually gave him responsibility over everything in his household. The favor of God, trying to put 
favor of God down. It's like trying to uh, uh, push a beach ball underwater. It just pops up nice and high, and he gets higher and higher, and he's in charge of this official in Pharaoh's administration's household. And then what happens? Jealousy and intimidation. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He's a man of integrity. The person he is in private is the same as he is in public. He has this internal congruence, which really is the heart of everything, by the way. If we want to see those prayers that we prayed uh, earlier actually grow legs and we become the answer to them, then the part of, and I'd say the pivotal power of those prayers coming on earth as it is in heaven is the, the learnt and the lived out congruence of Jesus' followers. That the person you are in private is the same as the person you are in public. That the stories you tell are the same and not exaggerated compared to the life you are living. So often we can get inflated, delusions of grandeur, and actually yet what the world is crying out for is the sons and daughters of God to be revealed through, wait for it, congruence. Learned through process. Doesn't sound particularly tweetable at this stage. So Joseph is now in prison. He's a slave accused of rape. It doesn't get any lower than that. He's forgotten. And what happens? The favor on Joseph's life brings him to the top. The, the jail warden puts him in charge of everything in the jail. The favor of the Lord is upon him. It's literally exactly the same phrase in this chapter as it was in the last, around the favor that, that Joseph's stewarding. The favor that rests on the congruence of him being the same in private as he is in public, which we'll get to. And what happens, two guys come to him with dreams and they say, we want you to interpret them for, him, for us. He does. One is a word of destiny, the other is a word of doom. What happens? Both of the things that Joseph says. And yet, Joseph stays two more years in the prison, waiting for the recognition that is due, until Pharaoh has these troubling dreams. And the cupbearer, or is it the baker, I forget, one or the two, says, you know what, I know someone in prison, wasting away, forgotten, who can interpret your dreams. And what happens? Joseph, we, we probably all know the story. Joseph then goes to Pharaoh, says, listen, this isn't about me, it's about God, and I'm just a landing strip for the Holy Spirit's revelation, paraphrased. And, um, and he interprets these dreams, and Pharaoh then starts getting tactical and starts saying, you know what, not only can you be right here next to me, but you can actually administer uh, and lead and be second in the kingdom. And Joseph begins this, uh, this mountaintop of his destiny, finally fulfilled, 17 years of process later, by the way, where he went down, 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 sold into slavery, accused of rape, forgotten by the people whose dreams he interpreted and got them out of prison, and then elevated into the highest places where these little peaks in the middle of it were mountaintops of favor in Potiphar's house and in prison. What happens? He gets elevated into the height of apostolic influence over a nation and actually saves that nation from famine. We talk about apostolic, we talk about influencers, thought leaders. Well, let's, let's get real for a minute. It's all about the person you are in private when the doors are closed, when Potiphar's wife comes calling. These are the things that are enabling God to see, actually, I can trust him, I can trust her. And equally, the process is the very thing that we need in order to be able to trust that God is for us. Because here's the thing, 10 years in Manenberg, it ain't been easy. 
Living with gangsters, coming out of gangs, living with drug addicts, it hasn't been easy. In the last six months, we've had more threats on our life than we have in the last few years previous. It's not getting any easier. At the end of every year, Sarah and I say, Lord, (laughs) next year would be great if it was a little bit easier. And we finally realized that's a stupid prayer to pray. Because it hasn't. But what we are beginning to learn, a bit like Jesus in Mark chapter 4, who takes his travel pillow when he knows that the storm's coming on a boat, and he's curled up like a cat when his disciples are all freaking out, that we're beginning to learn how to sleep in the storm. We're beginning to learn that the internal, not just congruence, but the internal atmosphere of congruence within ourselves and our spirit and God's spirit, like that, means that whatever external chaos is around, it needn't move us, and it needn't rob us from our own destiny, from our own purpose. And here's the other thing, all of that will be used and will be redeemed to get us to that place eventually. The process precedes the promise. God has given, some of you are sitting here, or all of you are sitting here with prophetic promise over your life, and there are varying degrees of awareness in each person of what that might look like. Some of you are sitting here saying, I've been burned by this whole process thing. Uh Uh-uh, I've got no patience left. The process precedes the promise because in the process you are becoming the person who is able to hold the gravitas and the prophetic destiny of the promise when it comes. It's all about the journey, not so much the destination. And every delay God allows is for the sake of deepening relationship with him. Delays on the tube are really annoying. Delays in traffic Really annoying. I'd forgotten about how fast-paced London is. It works really, really well, doesn't it, until one person decides to protest something, and then everything gets delayed. We're in a hurry the whole time. But what we know about God is that he's so good that if he allows a delay in our process, it is only ever for the purpose of deepening relationship with him. Imagine Joseph in that cell, branded as a rapist, what is the process that God was doing in him? Not, embitter, not embitterment, not despair, not hopelessness, but actually growing a man of congruence and favor so that when his time came, he was ready. He could hold that prophetic promise because of the man he had developed. Think about Jairus in Mark chapter five. Um, Jesus has just <laughs> delivered a man with a legion of demons and sent him out. As the first apostle, the world tried to marginalize and institutionalize him. And Jesus said, oh no, this isn't a guy to worry about. Sure, he's self-harming. Sure, he's really dangerous. Talking about chains breaking, he broke his own chains with his demonic strength. And the village was so scared. What happened? They, they marginalized him on the edge of society. And Jesus said, uh-uh, this guy is not someone to be thrown out. This man is the first apostle. And this guy sits in his clothes, praise God, fully clothed in his right mind. And the village was scared and they didn't want this to be happening because revival cost them something. But Jesus didn't see a a, a hopeless case. He saw his first apostle. Think of the woman at the well in John chapter four, shamefully uh, 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 bringing, um, uh, drawing water in the middle of the day because of her history relationship-wise and all the rest of it. What did Jesus see in her? He saw someone to be embraced, someone to ask for something, to be empowered, and someone to be sent out as an evangelist through his prophetic word of knowledge about her past that she probably didn't want anyone to know. And she then goes out into the villages, look it up in John 4, it's all there, and says, listen to this. He told me everything I'd ever done. 
that word of knowledge, that supernatural discernment that unlocked the shame of a woman so that she was propelled into being an evangelist when no one else said she could. That's what Jesus does. He takes the unlikely people. The bleeding woman in the next part of Mark chapter five, they've gone back to the other side of the lake now, probably want a couple of days off because that's been some intense ministry right there. You'd imagine Jesus has made a little film about the demoniac's life and um, right, we're gonna put him on the, the next Alpha Course promo. He sent him out and just said, go and tell people how I've had mercy on you. They get to the other side of the lake and what happens? A man of influence, well-known, of good repute, powerful. A guy called Jairus says, come help, my daughter's dying. Jesus is like, sure, why not? Demoniacs, influences, I'm equally happy with either. But then a little tug on his robe. And a woman who is unnamed by the gospel writer, by Mark, falls at his feet. And was he humiliating her? This woman who had been ceremonially unclean for 12 years and had been put outside the city walls because she was, uh, uh, again, ousted, marginalized, isolated because of her chronic disease. Was he exposing or humiliating her far from it. He knew that the moment he and she spoke and her healing was known by the rest of society, what would happen? She would be restored back to a place of worth and belonging in society. Now here's the thing, they're on their way to the important man's house to help his daughter. And you can imagine this woman, there's a line in the gospel in that story in Mark where it said, and she knelt at his feet. And she got to tell him the whole truth. Now for a chronically ill, ceremonially unclean woman in those times, that's a whole lot of truth. That wasn't a two minute snippet, that's a whole lot of truth. And you can imagine Jairus, this man of influence, I've got my chauffeur driven car waiting, come on. What does it look like in this sense for the kingdom to break forth? It looks like the marginalized, the unheard, the preferably unheard, because no one's voiceless, by the way. No one is voiceless. They're just some we prefer not to hear. And she is sat there and she gets to tell in front of the whole society her whole truth. You can imagine Jesus sitting there with her through tears. You can imagine people wondering what on earth's going on. You can imagine Jairus pacing up and down. And the delay for Jairus was the kindest thing Jesus could do for him, even in his point of need. And even when one of Jairus' servants comes and says, don't bother him anymore, your daughter's died. He's now crumpled on the floor, wailing. How bitter would he be with Jesus right now? This nothing of a woman. I got there first. The entitlement of the workers in the vineyard, we all know that. We all feel it to some extent. I rented a car today, waited 45 minutes. I felt that when people were coming in front of me. And I've obviously not fully dealt with it. Um, <laughs> but that delay was actually the kindest thing Jesus could do because there was a desperation and faith in Jairus that was paralleled by the desperation and faith of this unnamed bleeding woman. So let's say unnamed healed woman. 
and the landing strip for the Holy Spirit was not influence, was not power, was not eloquence, was not anything, was not gender. It was desperation and faith. And the woman's process was part of Jairus' process. And he had to piece that together. So what happens? They hop, back, they hop in um, Jairus' chauffeur-driven, what would have been camel or whatever, and they get to the house and the little girl is dead. And in a word, Jesus just says, get up, little girl. And then his pastoral anointing kicks in. Give her something to eat. Because he knew it was no more supernatural to raise her from the dead than it would be to heal her physically anyway. Both are humanly impossible. And we need to get over, by the way, our infatuation with the sort of wacky, weird signs and wonders. It's as supernatural to love your neighbor as it is to raise the dead. Amen? And in a world where we're seeing terms like global apartheid being coined because of the gross inequality between rich and poor, it might be the most supernatural thing you can do to love your neighbor who you don't know. There's a guy called... um, you may have heard of him, I hadn't. He's, I hope I get his name right. Sadhu Sundar Singh. Okay, cool. You know more than I do then. <laughs> he was an Indian missionary. He was born a Sikh, but converted to Christianity the night that he was about to commit suicide. And Jesus appeared to him in a supernatural visitation. And for the rest of his life, and it was short, he died at 40. He traveled, walking alone, Miles and miles through countries to Tibet to share the good news of Jesus with those who didn't know. Here's a little quote. I'm not worthy to follow in the footsteps of my Lord, but like him, I want no home, no possessions. Like him, I will belong to the road, sharing the suffering of my people, eating with those who will give me shelter and telling all people the love of God. His nickname, the apostle with the bleeding feet. And he tells a story about a stone that's been in a river, presumably for a really long time. Think about a pebble in a river. And he asks his followers, he says, is this stone wet? This dripping stone that he's just got out of the river that's been there for millennia. What's the answer? Little nod, yeah, okay, still here? The stone is wet, yes. He smashes it against another rock and the inside of it cracks open, bone dry. And this is the problem, isn't it? That we can be in church, we can be doing the stuff, we can have the river of God flowing over us day in, day out and in the center of us we can be bone dry. That internal congruence just isn't there. In Isaiah 28, There's a passage for the chefs and cooks amongst us. Bear with me. Isaiah 28, verse 27 and 28. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. He's gone crazy. What's he talking about? Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. Though he drives the wheels of his threshing cart over it, the horses do not grind it. Fully lost it now. Each of us has a different process in the crushing, in the preparation, in the process 
before we reach that promise. You can be a bit of cumin, you can be caraway, you can be wheat, you can be cinnamon, whatever it is. We want to keep you as a stick. We're going to grind you right up. We're going to make you into flour, and we're going to and imagine the different processes for each one of them. You need a different process for each one of those things. And what does it say? All this comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom, i.e., he knows the process each one of us needs in our unique beauty. And the process will take longer than we think. And that's his compliment to us. And we need every last minute of that process of crushing. And you think, oh, this is hard, this is painful. You can hear, you can hear the wheat. Oh, not again. Oh, Melanie's so good. But you need that process. And there's another process for different grains. There's another process for different spices. And here's the thing, when you mix some of those different things, not only is the aroma released, the unique aroma of each one of those unique foods or grains, keep with the analogy, but you can actually mix them, can't you? You can see the process going on over there, and you can mix those two and create something beautiful and brand new. Sarah and I went on different processes as we were growing up, but God took us, he crushed us, he did all the preparation he needed, and he brought us together and created a brand new flavor that's not just Pete or Sarah, but Pete and Sarah. That's the process he got us on towards marriage. And there's a process for each one of us, but it will always involve a breaking and a crushing. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And people talk about the prosperity gospel and the, re- the issue with the prosperity gospel is that it reduces prosperity to finance alone. We all preach a prosperity gospel, a prosperity of soul, spirit, heart, and mind. And that is the process Jesus has for each one of us. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And as we are pierced and as we are crushed, I once heard someone say love, they define love as love is just giving somebody the power to crush you and trusting them not to. So every day when Sarah and I wake up and we generate more hope for the presumably or or, 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 uh, chronically hopeless, we believe that actually it's worth handing our heart to addicts and gangsters on a plate and giving the power to crush us, but trusting them not to, and that one day, after many relapses, they might learn, oh, that's what it feels like to be loved. I'm not gonna crush you this time. Here's the thing, relapse is part of recovery. I don't know if you know it, but each one of us are addicts in some way, and each one of us are in rehab. We are being renewed inwardly, day by day, The Holy Spirit is rehabilitating us. The Holy Spirit is um, feeding our spirit man and we are killing our flesh day by day. The process of crushing, we we can look at uh, uh, Joseph and we can see where he came from and where he ended up. The process of crushing in those seeds and grains, we can see the unique aroma that's released in that. And then there's a process of crushing and uh, uh, crushing Wrong turns in the book of Exodus where God's people are waiting for Moses. This is um, in the middle of Exodus, Exodus 19. Moses goes up a mountain to meet with God with the stone tablets, get the law written on those tablets. The people panic. If you ever partnered with fear and made a bad decision, you'll know what they're talking about. The people panic. What do they do? 
having said, no, everything the Lord says, we will do it. What do they do? Moses goes up the mountain. Oh, we're a bit scared. He's too late. He said he'd be back by now. I know, nice gold earrings. Let's melt them down and make a golden calf out of it, and let's worship that. In other words, they relapsed onto their drug of choice, idolatry. And what happens? Moses comes down the mountain with his tablets, brand new tablets etched by the hand of God himself. Chaos. Relapse. Everyone all over the place. And then a couple of chapters later, what's God, Yahweh, covenant-making God? There's a Hebrew word, chesed, which means steadfast loving kindness. It's really hard to translate because it's basically only really said of God. He cannot let you down. And this God that cannot let you down did not let his uh, Israelite people down. They relapsed. They turned their back on him, having said, no, everything he says we will do. Moses leaves. They worship the golden calf. And then in uh, chapter 34, you can almost just hear the sigh of a loving father as he talks to Moses about these problematic people that he's trying to lead through a desert. Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses, oh, they broke the old tablets as a result of the relapse. You can hear the sigh. Chisel out two new stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were on the first ones, which you broke. Every day as a young man gets clean and maybe another relapses back onto heroin, We have the choice to generate in ourselves the relentless hope of a loving father that says my response to relapse, my response to you going back to those coping mechanisms that you you know don't work, my response to you coming under the lies that you know are actually rubbish, but for some reason the fear is getting you to partner with, my love that looks at you as you live a different life in public as you do in private. My response to all of that, dear child, is the renewal of covenant. And as you're waiting for this God to punish you and say, away from me, you're unclean. He sighs and he says, get me two new tablets. Let's work again at this. If we are to understand the process that God has on each one of us, we will learn from the addicted and the broken. We will learn from the marginalized and the chronically sick. We will learn from the ups and downs of someone who was uh, jailed and then accused of rape. We will learn from the Israelites who wandered and muddled their way through the desert. We will learn from each one of these because each one of them show us that we're all in the same boat. We're no better. So to come round full circle as we wind down, what are some of the things we can learn from Joseph's process that actually relate to us right here, right now. And we're going to start praying into these in a couple of minutes. Just let me finish and then we'll, then we'll do that. The question God is, is, is asking each of us is, will you allow me to develop my purpose in you in ways that you could not conceive of? We talk about God having a plan for our life. Okay, you know what? Newsflash, he doesn't. God does not have a plan for your life. He's got something a lot better than that. He's got a purpose and a destiny for your life. He doesn't hand you a map. He's not a micromanager saying, do this, do that. He hands you a compass and says, follow me. God has got a purpose, not a plan. 
and in his purpose for Joseph's life. Was it his plan for Joseph to end up in prison? I don't think so. But what was his purpose? Well, it was unshakable and actually got him out of prison and used the very time in prison to shape a nation. Business, admin, responsibilities, think about it. 17 years of process that seemed to go against everything that had been spoken to him as a teenager. The higher the cost of the call, the clearer the revelation. Some of you are holding costly calls. Some of you are holding calls and purposes you know will cost you everything. That's the way it works. When God told me to move into Manenberg on my own and reparent a guy who assured me he was off heroin and then rapidly emerged wasn't, he had made things so damn clear that I could not run away. He had provided all the money I needed to buy a house in the center of hard living gang territory. He had given me a great flourishing relationship with the most prolific drug dealer on the street. He had spoken so clearly and had over-provided for the house by 20 pounds. And then when I moved into the house, turned on the electricity for the lights, nothing happened. Because the crystal meth addicts had stripped the wiring to sell for scrap. And then a friend walked in an hour later and said, oh yeah, I can wire the house. Give me 20 quid and I'll do it. Right down to the final 20 quid, 208,200 rand later, over eight months of uh, fluctuating exchange rates, bank charges, and a whole lot of fear from me down to the last 20 quid. I could not turn around. And yet that call has been the most costly thing I've ever followed. He will make it clear to you, the higher the cost of the call, he will honor the cost. He will honor the weight that he's bringing you into with clarity. Second, and there are only three of these. The greater your destiny, the longer the journey. Here's some hearts sinking. And actually, you know, they used to say, oh, we're all into microwaves now. We're not. We're into slow cooking these days, aren't we? So we kind of get it. Microwave a big leg of beef or something or slow cook it over coals for like 15 million hours. Much better the second one. That's what we are. These beautiful briskets in the hand of God. What's the vegan equivalent? Ratatouille. I don't know. The length of the journey is God's highest compliment to you. And once you get there to that thing that you saw, we cannot unsee, Sarah and I, the prophetic destiny of Manenberg and the people we live and work with. Most of those people in that film that you saw are walking miracles out of gangs, out of drugs, out of addiction, out of hopelessness, out of despair, out of poverty, out of poverty. Most of them. Some aren't. We keep praying for them. And thirdly, finally, promise. God does not measure in time. He doesn't measure you in time elapsed. God's measurement is in character and growth. We're in, Dallas Willard once said, we're into counting Christians. You know what God's into? Weighing them. So he doesn't measure time. You might think, I've been in this tough season for the last 10 years. God, get me out of it. He's going, are you joking? It took me six months to get you into that. That's my highest compliment for you. And if only you'd stop moaning and complaining, you'd come out of it transformed. 
I'm saying this from experience. We're learning. We still moan. 45 minutes in a car rental, whatever. <laughs> the only measure of success is conformity to the person of Jesus. Each one of us is wondering, am I a success? Of course we are. There's nothing wrong with that question. People once asked me and Sarah, What's your success rate like in Crew 62, the name of the house where these guys come and get clean off drugs? What's your success rate? We just had a couple of messy runaways and it was all pretty dysfunctional. She looks at them, eyeballs them and just goes, 100%. I'm like, <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. She goes, um, here's the thing, we weren't ever asked by God to get anyone off drugs. Every gangster and drug addict who comes into our home is told about and shown the love of Jesus and given a bed and an opportunity to belong in a family that embraces him with everything going on. Some of them choose to accept that. Many don't. But our success rate is 100% because each one of those guys who's come through that door has received all of the above. Because success is simply faithfulness to the calling of God on your life. Period. So we're going to go into some ministry time. I've gone long, longer than I said I would. I'm sorry. It's all about the process. And maybe we could get someone up to play some music or something as we do this. And I would like to pray. We would like to pray for you. My sense is that there might be some of us who think, I've been on this process for years and years, actually. I've been looking for God for years and years and never really found him. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't recognize this. Others might say, I know that I'm on the cusp of my next Chapter, I know that I'm discerning that. One of the, one of the parts of Sarah's process was um, receiving a scholarship to study war studies at King's College down the road here, fully funded by a scholarship that was for the next leaders in Africa. So even that, that, that institution recognizes that you're a leader in Africa and they put their money where their mouth is. Many people told Sarah she shouldn't do it. Waste of time. Studying war studies. And what did she end up studying? The reintegration of child soldiers back into community. And what have we gone back to Manenberg to do? The reintegration of child soldiers back into community. There's a beauty in the symmetry and in the purposes of God. 